Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have an interview with Gary Young. Gary Young is an American poet, printer, and book artist. In 2010, he was named the first ever poet laureate of Santa Cruz County. He has written many collections of poetry and edited two collections, which will be the focus of our interview. The first being The Geography of Home, California's Poetry of Place, and the second, Bear Flag Republic, Prose, Poems, and Poetics from California. Let's go meet Gary. For me, uh, history and poetry are so interrelated that they're practically siblings, um, and that you know, a lot of the early poetry that we have, you know, the lyrical poetry from the ancient world is in a lot of ways how we understand history. And so from the beginning, poetry has had an integral relationship with how we understand place and people. Um, so I just wanted you to, I just wanted to start by talking about um, why is it important uh, to read poetry to understand place? If you're looking to really understand the history of somewhere like California, why is reading poetry so important? Well, poetry gives a voice. It articulates what we feel. And I may love the ocean. I may love the mountains. I may love a man or a woman. But poetry makes sense of that. Um, those feelings are articulated. And we can carry poems uh, in our pockets, in our hearts, the way we carry a photograph of a beloved person. And poetry, that's part of the magic of poetry. Uh, it tells us what we think. Yes. And I, you know, I, I think a lot of when you're writing about history, it can get pretty dry. And then poetry just pulls you into this world of emotions and feelings. And I was recently talking on an episode about uh, some of these, you know, battles that we've been talking about in California history um, that might seem kind of mundane when you're just repeating the facts. But the people that are there that are experiencing this um, for them, that's their whole world. And I think poetry gives you a, a, a glimpse into, into that, uh, that just a historical narrative on its own wouldn't. Well, poetry, I mean, especially lyric poetry, the, the, the task of lyric poetry is to stop time. It is ahistorical. Um, and uh, in history, what did Faulkner say? Uh, the past isn't dead. In fact, it's not even the past. And, and so history never dies. Um, and poetry, uh, like history, I think, is, is, exists out time, outside of time in some weird way. Uh, in California, um, we are, as far as I know, the only state and perhaps even the only country that was named after a novel, which is kind of crazy, a, a 15th century Spanish novel about the land of, uh, uh, ruled by Queen Califia. And mm -hmm. so, um, how cool is that? So, so we have, I think, that these literary roots that run very, very deep in California, right down to our name, at least the name that has stuck. Yeah, and I think as you were saying that, it made me think, um, I'm a big fan of opera. And, you know, there's this, uh, in an opera, you have these moments called these arias, where, you know, the sing, you know, the, the beautiful soprano singer just kind of goes off and, you know, finishes with this magnificent cadenza. And you just, you just kind of, you're pulled out of the story into the person in, in the historical narrative and you are suddenly there with them, feeling with them. And yeah. I think that's what I want for my, 
people reading history. And that's, I mean, that's in part why biography is, is just as important as kind of general histories or historical narratives of major events is you want to, you want to be in there with the people. Yeah. Who was there? Um, <clears throat> our, uh, we haven't gotten to the books yet, but uh, Bear Flag Republic, uh, our book about uh, prose poetry, uh, has a picture of the first California flag on it. Um, bear Flag Republic flag, uh, which the Californios make fun of because it's supposed to be a bear. They said it looks like a pig, and yeah, it looks like a pig. But um, <laughs> that was one of the reasons we chose it, is that it had that raw um, feel that, uh, that we're making history by writing poetry in California. Absolutely. Let's, let's, let's transition into talking about your two uh, collections. You have many books of poetry, uh, a lot of wonderful books of poetry, um, but I wanted to focus specifically on two collections that you put together um, uh, with Christopher Buckley. Can you share about those two collections, uh, what inspired them and what was your intention with them? What were you trying to impart? Well, we didn't set out to be boosters um, for, you know, California, but we're both native Californians. We love the state. Um, we have a lot of friends. I've been publishing poetry, um, my own, but I've been publishing other people's poetry for 50 years. I have a press, Greenhouse Review Press, so I have met a lot of poets over the years. The community of poets um, is a very strong one, and um, we wanted to be somehow um, elevate them, bring them together uh, in a way. California has so many terrific poets and playwrights and novelists and screenwriters, and we wanted to celebrate them. Um, and I'll be honest that they were part of our, of our uh, impulse uh, is that we feel that, that West Coast writers are sometimes, or have been sometimes excluded by the East Coast literary establishment. Um, I think that's it's a cliche, but it's true, and it's still true. And so we wanted to um, take matters into our own hands and say, New York, nice place, um, love to visit, wouldn't want to live there, but how about California? We've got our poets here. And yeah, I, um, I avoid using the phrase back east. I say go east, um, <laughs> which, you know. Go east, young man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I because it's, it's true. There is kind of this... Uh, sense that you know in the west we make movies and we grow fruit but um you know the true literary center of the universe is new york city but um, california has such an, a fascinating uh you know literary history and i want to talk about kind of you know how how to think about um, the poetry of california because it's it's so complicated because you have all of these different subcultures and it's almost it's almost hard to think about combining, you know, uh, poets of uh, the agricultural communities of the Central Valley with like the beat po poetry of San Francisco in the '50s. So how how do you is there some kind of through line that you can see um, in California poetry, or are you more kind of cataloging these different regional types of poetry in a kind of not arbitrarily drawn, but geographical lines of California? Well, California is such a diverse region, it's almost beyond imagining. We have uh, the Sierras, we have Death Valley, the hottest place on earth. We have over 800 miles of coastline. Um, we have the San Joaquin Valley. We have the megalopolis of Los Angeles. We have the San Francisco Bay. We have these extraordinary natural wonders 
all in this one piece. And I don't remember what it is. I think we have the seventh or eighth, you know, if we were a country, we'd have one of the biggest GDPs of, of any country on earth. Um, we could be, and I think a lot of people do feel as if California is its own state, its own country, its own dominion. Um, and one of the things that, that I think ties everybody together is their shared dream of California. Um, it is partially because of the dream machine of Hollywood, but way more than that. I think that, that um, we are at the very edge of the continent. Uh, Western expansion went as far as it could go, and it ran up against the ocean. And we're here, we're on the edge. California occupies that, that westward expansion right up to the very end. And um, those dreams, those desires, whether they're actual or not, uh, California does seem in the imagination uh, capacious enough to uh, realize one's dreams. That was certainly true of my family. Uh, my family, like I think most Californians, came from someplace else. Uh, my father was born here. My mother was born in Texas. And, um, but they, they all came to California in the 20s and 30s uh, because they thought of it as the promised land. And I think people still do. Uh, do we have time for me to read a little piece? Oh, of course. That? Yes, please. Uh, in, in the geography of home and in uh, Bear Flag Republic, uh, we asked um, all of the poets who are represented to write a prose compliment about their work and about, about California, about what they feel. In, in Bear Flag Republic, it was uh, focused mostly on prose poetry. But in the geography of home, it was specifically about California. And uh, I'll read just a little bit of what I wrote about here. I was born in Southern California in mid-century, the descendant of families that had migrated west from the farmlands of Texas, the freshwater oyster beds of the upper Mississippi, and the coal mines of West Virginia. My parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents recalled their home state so vividly and persistently with such obvious affection while I was growing up. It was clear their identity as immigrants described and situated them in a state each had adopted and adored without reservation. They believed, and I was taught, that California was the true promised land, a gift from God, a distillation and refinement of the best the continent had to offer. I grew up believing that California is as close to paradise as any place we will ever find on earth, and I've lived here all my life. Uh, my grandfather was an evangelical minister, and he and his wife, my grandmother, they really did think of this as paradise on earth. And they had no problem with the changes. You know, they came here in the early 20s, and uh, my grandmother didn't die until 89. And as she saw the cities grow and she saw things change, she was completely fine with it. It's like, well, that's California. You know, it's, it's big. It's, there's room for everybody, and there's room for everybody to do whatever they want. Um, and I think that that, uh, I hesitate to call it the myth of California, because I think that uh, at least uh, on some level, it is absolutely true for people. Um, and I think that's what draws people. And I think that's what connects people. Yeah, it seems like, it seems like, um, and I'm, I'm curious if this is true in the, the world of poetry as well. 
it seems like there was this period of optimism. Um, and then there was this kind of period of there's so much here um, and uh, overcrowding and this idea of like, can this state, uh, you know, function in its, in its size and in its scope. And so I, I, I want, if, if possible, for you to talk a little bit about um, how you think about the history of poetry in California, um, just in terms of the different uh, maybe periods or different moments uh, that are the important kind of touchstones uh, for the history of poetry. Um, and I know this is outside of our questions, but I'm, I'm just curious if, um, if you're, you know, say new to poetry in California, is the best way to think about it, to think about like epics of periods or to think about looking at certain places like the Bay Area and focusing on the poetry of that region? There is no California poetry. <clears throat> there is a New York school. There is the beat uh, group of so-called beat poets in San Francisco. These groups have come out. Um, but I think that's, that's more uh, a result of, of proximity than of anything else. Um, you know, there's a Kansas City School of Poetry because they, they have a university there. They have, um, they have, you know, people have congregated uh, around new letters and stuff. And so there you have it. You know, that's what people do. Uh, regionalism is real, absolutely. But California is so large, it can brace so many. You know, the LA scene is separate from the San Francisco scene. Uh, the Fresno scene you already mentioned is a, is a very real thing. Um, but uh, I think that it's really the thing that, that again, unites them is uh, they are united against, uh, I mean, it sounds like a street fight, but against the East Coast, um, <laughs> that, that, that we don't need you. We have, we're, you know, we're, we're taking care of ourselves just fine here in California. Um, and there's not a lot of rancor between these groups, and there's definitely a lot of, of overlap. And, and uh, somebody who moves from Los Angeles to San Francisco is, is going to find a, a home in the scene there, uh, and vice versa. So uh, I think regionalism, you know, it may be if you go to Los Angeles, you write a, you write a lot of poems about Los Angeles. Uh, I actually, I've lived here all my life, but I taught for a semester in, in New York City. 25 years ago, and I wrote poems about New York City while I was there. I never, I didn't think of myself as a New York poet, um, but uh, my practice is to write about where I am. And uh, you know, when I when I was in Japan, I wrote poems about Japan. Um, but California is my home state. It's my, it's where my my actual literal home is, and so you know, the preponderance of my my poems are about. California. Yeah, I guess you, you know, at the core of poetry is you're writing about what you see and what you experience and what's around you. And, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about Philip Levine, who is someone uh, that is uh, special to us both. Um, and he's someone that's kind of uh, typifies what you're describing, right? Someone that, uh, you know, is in a place and then writes about a place um, and is someone that's from California, but lived in other places and wrote about those places. Um, and so this kind of tie to place. Um, but I want to talk about um, how you curated this collection. 
because I'm sure it was quite challenging to go through <laughs> uh, all of the poetry from California. Uh, so can you describe what that process was like and how, and what was your, um, what was your method or system for um, selecting poems to include? We started uh, with our friends. You know, I'll be honest, you know, with, yeah. with the poets that we knew and, and with poems about California. It was one of those situations where, you know, we were uh, sitting around talking over a couple of beers and it just came up in conversations. God, have you read Larry Levis's new poem? Oh, my goodness. You know, Gary Soto has this wonderful poem about Fresno. It's like, oh, Wanda Coleman and her, you know, boy, she just nails Los Angeles. And, went, you know, we know a lot of poems that we really love about California. We should start making a list. And so we did. We just started making lists of poems that we had come across. Um, and not always. Once we, we got to that stage, uh, we were just looking at poems um, about California, regardless of, of who had written them. Started with our friends' poems because those were the ones we were most intimate with. But, um, but then we just started looking and uh, our problem was, was stopping. Uh, you know, the right. books are both, they're both door stoppers. And the truth is, and I think we mentioned it in, in, in the introduction to one of the books, is that somebody else would have come in and curated uh, another anthology, uh, which would have been of the same caliber, but it would have been a totally different group of poets and poems. Uh, yes. We have that, you know, the, the, the literary landscape here is that rich. Yes. And I, you know, there's, it's impossible to truly capture everything. Um, are there are there poets that you had not known about that you discovered in your process of researching that were uh, important to you um, and have grown important to you? Sure, certainly. There, there's a lot of people. Um, uh, Carol Lynn was somebody that I hadn't known. I mean, there's easily half the people in the anthology I was introduced to either through Chris Buckley, uh, my co-editor, or uh, just by reading poems, because once you start looking, uh, it's like reading or writing of gathering poems for an anthology about cooking or the weather. Suddenly, you st they're everywhere, and mm -hmm. um, and so uh, there are just a lot of people that. Uh, oh my goodness, I, I didn't even know you existed. And you've got six books out. How did that happen? Um, and that's one of the wonderful things about both reading and. Uh, curating an anthology is is that your eyes get open to lots of different uh, people and, and strategies and uh, ways of attacking a poem and, and ways of, of talking about place. So let's talk about history now for a minute. Um, so we talked at the beginning about how related poetry is to understanding history, but I want to talk about you and your personal understanding of California history. How did that change or expand or evolve um, as you were kind of trying to encapsulate a state in a, in a book of poetry or a collection of poetry? Uh, how did that, um, how did it grow? Well, like every, a tough question, I know. <laughs> like every Californian, um, every native Californian, I studied California history in school. Um, you know, I built my, my mission out of sugar cubes like everybody else. Um, and my boys both grew up here and we made our pilgrimages up and down the coast to see um, all of the uh, 
all, all of the, you know, the, every one of them, uh, the missions, you know, stopping at each one, taking pictures and drawing and doing all the stuff you're supposed to do. Um, my sense of the history of California grew significantly once I, actually once I left um, college and graduate school and I started reading more history. Um, I'm dear friends with Don Waldy, who is a, a historian of, uh, of California, certainly, but of Los Angeles in particular. Um, but talking with him, um, I was fortunate enough to work with him when, when he was writing um, his magnificent book, Holy Land. Um, and so became more interested in the history of California per se. And of course, like the United States history, um, realizing how much of history is left out of the history books. Um, understanding water, for instance, money, um, racism, um, and understanding uh, indigenous peoples and what happened to them. And uh, all of that is, was, was not in my history book. You know, the Indians loved the Spaniards and they loved working in the missions and the Californios were happy to have the Yankees come in and take over uh, the state because they did such a good job. So th these myths die hard. Um, and as I matured as, as someone who was interested in, in history, um, I started digging into that. And the history of, of, of as I said, water is, if you want to talk about California, you've got to talk about water. Um, and so um, understanding that and understanding uh, the political pressures, um, you know, the, the kind of money that came into to California from the gold rush. Uh, you know, California, you know, really didn't, I mean, it was, there were, you know, what, 1850, right? 1849, there were not very many um, Anglo settlers in California until the gold rush, which was only you know, the mid 19th century. And so what happens when you, you, you take a virgin land, you know, so-called, I put that in quotes, and you just fill it full of, of hungry capitalist, you know, white supremacists really, um, and then dump a bucket of money on them and see what happens. And that's California. Uh, um, and, and, and some of it's ugly and, uh, so it's, it's interesting uh, reading poems about uh, Lazanada, for instance, um, writes about being in an internment camp. He's a great California writer, um, also from around Fresno. Um, he was in the camps when he was a child. So uh, filling in those holes and poetry can help to do that. Uh, you understand uh, more of, of what was you know, the dark side, you know, behind the curtain of history that we are uh, given in school. Yeah, I um, recently, I, this movie had always been a movie that I intended to watch, but never had watched it. I watched uh, the movie Chinatown for the first time recently. Uh, it made me think about it when you were uh, bringing up issues of water, because I knew kind of vaguely what the plot was, um, kind of a Raymond Chandler-esque, you know, mystery with a detective with an attitude. Uh, but I didn't realize that water was kind of the underlying theme throughout the movie or the kind of the background uh, was water issues in Los Angeles. And those those kinds of things that we, we don't think about because they're kind of our dirty secrets a little bit, you know, it's how we use water and how, we, you know, the exploitation. I mean, it's it's 
and, and that's, uh, for me, California history is so full of that. It's full of uh, glitz and glamour, but it's also full of dark, you know, there's, there's this kind of underlying darkness there too. And I think, oh, absolutely. I think poetry really brings that out because you can really kind of juggle both of those in a poem in a way that's much more challenging in prose. Um, I, well, go ahead. I was going to say, well, first of all, we're, we're having the same issues right now. If you go to the, the Central Valley, um, so much of, of the, the water rights have all been bought up by essentially one person. And they're buying land so they can own the water underneath it. Mm -hmm. um, and then you see things like, uh, if you've driven it recently, um, acre after acre after acre of chopped down trees. Because depending on the allocation of water, you know, people are so insatiable um, for um, almond milk, for instance, a, a, a very thirsty plant. Um, and so sometimes it just, no, we're going to put our water over here. They just cut down all the mature trees. You see it all the time. And they're planting vineyards with no expectation of ever harvesting any grapes. They've just done it to control the water under the grapes and then moving it around where they can make the most money. In the meantime, the whole valley it has subsided like 10 feet as they just keep over pumping and uh, they have no idea how they'll recharge that. So it's still happening. This, this, uh, the history from the 1920s and 30s is repeating itself now 100 years later. Um, so water and money. It, uh, yeah, I, um, I'm a big fan of, uh, he's a writer from, from Fresno, the area where I am. Uh, Mark Arax, who's written some great books. One of them is called The Dreamt Land. Um, I, I know Mark and I know his his uh, cousin, Eris, who's a dear friend of mine, Eris Janikin. Um, he's got a great picture in one of the books. I, I'm forgetting where it is. I've never been to it, but there's like a somewhere in the Central Valley, there's this like a kind of measurement pole where you can see uh, how much the, the, the earth has dropped, um, you know, pulling from the the, you know, the reservoir of water underground that we are using. And it's, you know, it's, it's horrible. So I, <laughs> I just think there's only, you know, it's such a kind of tragic thing um, intermixed with, you know, moneyed interests. And the only way that I think you can really respond to it is through poetry, ultimately. Like, I mean, there's a political drive that needs to happen to ensure our future. But, you know, in the moment, I think, you know, retreating to poetry is not a bad, not a bad option. Um, I want to talk about um, your journey uh, of being a poet and talk about um, where you see uh, poetry in California was and where you think it's going. So if you just share a little bit about your journey, um, you know, your poetry journey and then where uh, California poetry was and uh, where you see it headed and feel free to talk about um, poets that you've known and uh, we, I, I always love uh, poet stories, so <laughs> those are great. <laughs> well, there's a lot of poet stories. I don't think uh, the statute of limitations has run out. Uh, so, um, <laughs> but you know, I started I started writing poetry when I was uh, very young. I uh, I went to a, a book sale. I don't know if they still do it, but Scholastic used to go into the junior high schools, and I went to. Francis E. Willard Junior High School in Santa Ana, California. 
And the seventh grade, they had these books out. I bought a copy of Edgar Allan Poe, selected poems and stories. Um, Winter Binner's uh, The Jade Mountain, the uh, Book of Tang Dynasty Poets, and um, it was uh, Edgar, oh goodness, I can't remember. All of a sudden I, I thought of Wint <laughs> Ivor Winters and that's not him. But anyway, the um, Immortal Poems of the English Language. Why I bought them, I don't know. I read them and from then on I just, I, I knew I wanted to be a poet. Although I, I, at the time I wanted to be a Chinese poet and I knew that that was going to be hard. Um, but I'd actually gotten closer than I thought I was going to get. I, uh, translate from the Chinese, uh, translate from the Japanese, and um, uh, I've lived in the Santa Cruz Mountains for over 40 years. Uh, the idea of a recluse poet has always attracted me. Um, and so it's, uh, that's when I started. My grandfather, I mentioned before, was an evangelical minister, so I grew up uh, hearing the Bible. I mean, it's just, it's in my ears, in my head. Um, and my mother was a singer. And so can I, can I pause you really quick? Course, sure. And I, I, I just want to say this, and I, I think it's an important thing. You know, there, there is some virtues um, to having heard the Bible. It is, it, is the, it is one of the most important books. And it's people, I, I feel like I don't want to lose it as literature for a lot of people. And I feel like more people should read the Bible in a non-theological way to understand some things. Uh, and understand because you can't read classic literature, you know, uh, some of the great novels. You can't read Moby Dick without understanding the Bible in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a similar way um, with the Bible being a part of the, the family home. And I'm at first, you know, you know, it, it was kind of hammered into me, but I, I've grown to appreciate the knowledge that I kind of have because of that in some ways. It's, it's like knowing Latin, which I don't know. But that's not going to hurt you if you learn Latin. You know, a lot of a lot of kids, especially in Catholic schools, it's like, oh my God, they beat Latin into me. It's like, that's a good thing. That's not a yes, bad thing. Yes, yes. Um, it's just the method of delivery. Yes, I mean, that's it. Yeah, the, the not hitting you with with the yeah. regard wrist is yes, as I've heard yes. from so many Catholic friends. Yes. But uh, but the Bible, those cadences, um, the rhythms. Uh, completely uh, interior, you know, they became part of how I think. Uh, my mother was a singer, and I, it, it, this sounds uh, like a, a glib answer, but I've been asked before, you know, what were your, what are your major influences? And, and when I first started writing, it was Frank Sinatra and the Bible. Um, <laughs> I love Frank Sinatra. I loved Frank Sinatra when I was in high school. Um, and, and, his phrasing and the, the Bible's cadences, um, they really informed me. Um, and of course, then reading you know, mostly the metaphysical poets, especially John Donne and, and Ben Johnson, and, and then reading a lot of Chinese and Japanese uh, poetry um, sort of sent me in the direction that I ended up going. Well, let me, let's follow that rabbit trail for a second. How, wh where does one start? I mean, with Chinese and Japanese poetry, uh, what's kind of the the entry point, and uh, who are the major voices? I'm, uh, you know, I, I have a sense of, you know, through world uh, or civilization courses, like who the basics are. But where where did you start, and who were the kind of the major players for you? 
Well, it, of course, as, as a non-speaker, it was all through translation. And the translations that I read first were Witter Bitter, who was one of the great translators at the beginning of the century, Ezra Pound, his poems Cafe, um, which really, uh, it's important to know that his translations and William Carlos Williams' translations from Chinese poetry in the teens and 20s of the last century, so a little over 100 years ago, that they really invented free verse in the 20th century, Whitman and to some um, extent Dickinson in the 19th century. But um, Pound and Williams pretty much invented the free verse line that we have interiorized, in, at least in this country, was from their translations of Chinese poetry. Interesting. And he got, you know, uh, Pound got his information from Fenelosa um, and uh, read it incorrectly, but that didn't stop him. And, um, and so that was really sort of the beginning of, of what we now think of as free verse in this, in this country. Um, and then uh, in the mid-century, uh, Kenneth Rexaroth, his 100 poems from the Chinese, 100 poems from the Japanese, 100 more poems from the Chinese, 100 more poems from the Japanese. Um, uh, he's another poet who I think, uh, and, and like uh, Levine, was not from California, but ended up becoming the quintessential California poet. Um, and that's what California does to people. It turns them into Californians. Um, and so, so he was another one. Um, uh, now um, there's, there's, uh, there's more translations than, than, than you can count out there. There's, it's, uh, it's really a, a wonderful, wonderful time to read poems uh, in other languages, and not just uh, Chinese, but, um, you know, in Polish. We think of, like, Milos um, bringing Polish poetry here, um, and, and all the translations from, from the French and the Spanish. My goodness, all the Spanish poets um, who were, oddly enough, so we have Robert Bly, who also did translations of Vallejo and, and other Spanish and South American poets, and who were they influenced by? Whitman. Um, so we've got South American popes, Neruda and Jimenez and all these people who revered Whitman. And then we have people coming back, Bly and others, um, James Wright, translating them in the 50s and 60s. And so there's a huge explosion of, of, of poetry that was inspired by uh, South American surrealism, for instance. Um, but this amazing cross-pollination that's happened in the last 50 years is one of the things that I think really has made uh, poetry in English in America so exciting. Uh, one of the things about, about Americans, uh, for better or worse, we're capacious and we're kind of ravenous and um, we're larcenists, you know, you know this country. Um, give, me, give me your land. I mean, that's really been it from the very beginning. Talk about history. Um, and uh, with the, you know, the latest change of uh, regimes, thank God, in Washington, um, from the very beginning, this, this country was built on thievery and, and on expansionism. You know, we've always been an, an empire. Um, that's not how I read it in, in my U.S. history book in junior high school. Um, but I've come to see that that's what it is. And, uh, 
you know, we've been gobbling up land since the, you know, since the pilgrims. And so uh, trying to understand that and seeing what it's about, uh, the good side of that is that we've done the same thing with language. You know, if you look at a French um, dictionary, it's about this thick, and you look at an English dictionary, and it's four times as thick. Because we steal words, just like we steal people's lands. It's like, I love that word, akimbo. like that word, going to use it. Um, and, and American English is, is just this rich, um, you know, and, and we're becoming more polyglot. Um, Spanglish is going to be, like, people aren't going to be reading or speaking in Spanglish. They're going to be reading and speaking in, in Spanish. Um, and so recognizing that, and I think embracing it rather than fighting it, is, is critical for poets if they want to, unless they want to get just overwhelmed by the tides of history. That's where it's going. And uh, I find it exhilarating. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I've really enjoyed Anthony Cody's uh, book, Borderland Apocrypha, that was, you know, up for the National Book Award. And, you know, the way he uses English and Spanish, you know, it's kind of, it's this, you know, it's, it's recognizing this kind of duality that we live in, especially in California. And I, I want to talk for a second about uh, coming back to this concept of place and talking about Santa Cruz. Um, so obviously this is all in light of the absolute devastation of fires um, recently. And I'm sure that's uh, a, a soft subject for you at this, at this point. Um, for, for uh, me as well, I mean, our, we the Creek fire in uh, near Shaver Lake where I'm close to is, uh, was, I mean, I drove up there for the uh, first time last week and it was, it was haunting. Um, and, you know, I'm sure in Santa Cruz too, you know, just uh, a lot of those trees um, and, and, and you know, being so old and just kind of the place being transformed. But I, I want to talk about how Santa Cruz, you feel it affected your poetry. Uh, do you consider yourself a poet of Santa Cruz? I mean, is that kind of like how you, and what does that mean exactly? Well, Santa Cruz allowed me to become the person that I became. When I moved to Santa Cruz in 1969, it was still a sleepy beach town. It was extremely conservative. Um, we had a sheriff, Al Norn, or as people called him, Al Mad Dog Norm. He was old school. You didn't have people sleeping on the sidewalks. You didn't have anybody coming to town without any money because they got billy clubbed and sent on their way. And the citizens were just fine with that. Uh, the, the, uh, the business leaders were also the political leaders. They ran the whole show, like most small towns of that era all over the country. The university, and I came here to go to school in 1969, uh, changed all that. By 1972, the progressives, so-called, had taken over, um, pushed out all the conservatives, um, all the Chamber of Commerce types, and we became, you know, this wild-eyed uh, liberal bastion. Um, of course, now, all those same people have become business people, and they're all in the Chamber of Commerce, and so um, business has <laughs> come back around. Yeah. But, um, but when I got here, it was, and one of the reasons I came is that it was easy to be poor. You know, uh, it was, you could rent a place for $30 a month. 
you know, and you were on the beach. I mean, it was there was no one here but but uh, day trippers that came to the boardwalk, and some surfers, and retirees. That's who lived in Santa Cruz, and so coming here then allowed me to. Um, I bought a I bought a Victorian. I had to, I was putting myself through through school. I had a car. Um, it had been my mother's car. I drove it up here. Um, I got a job at the 7-Eleven. Um, I lived on campus for just a quarter. And um, I don't know what made me do it, but I started looking for a house. Uh, and I ended up buying a three-story Victorian house. Um, and you know, it breaks people's heart. I paid $23,000 for it. It had 10 bedrooms. It was broken into five apartments. It was on four lots. I sold my car and used that money for the down payment on a car. And back in those days, oh, you got the money for a down payment? You're 19? That's good enough for me. <laughs> you, can't, I mean, you can't do that now. And of course, that's a house that's probably worth $4 million now. Um, but it was a, you know, the, the, the scale doesn't even jive. It doesn't, because it, it was literally a different time. Money didn't mean the same thing. You know, people were making 15 grand a year and felt like they were, they were kings. And uh, so that's how I got, I landed there. I, I, I started a press. I, uh, I went back down to UC Irvine, got my MFA, moved back home to Santa Cruz and I took a night class. I wanted to learn how to print. And uh, I went to the high school, took a night class, became a letterpress printer, fell in love with it. Uh, I quit my job, bought a printing press, and that's how I made my living for 30 years and became a fine printer and, and a book designer and, and a printmaker. But that's how it started. And how do you think about, how does your personal poetry, how do you feel it's been influenced by being in Santa Cruz? Well, I write a lot of nature poetry. Um, you know, uh, 40 years ago, I moved up into the Santa Cruz Mountains. And so there's a lot of poems about birds. Um, you know, I mean, I'm working on a new book called uh, uh, American Analects, and it's sort of a takeoff on, on uh, Confucius and writing about um, friends and, and my, my mentor, Gene Holton, that I did the original Geography of Home with, who passed about five years ago. Um, writing about him, writing about other friends who've passed, uh, because the Analects have a lot of poems about, about people that um, the master thought were gentlemen, as you put it. You know, th these were people that, that you really should emulate. And so I'm writing a book about that, but um, just before the fire hit, and I haven't written a word since the fire in August. It's just been too crazy, and then school started a month afterwards. Um, you know, people ask me, what are you writing about? I said, death and birds. <laughs> um, and it sounds facetious, but it's not. I write a lot about birds and I a lot of write about about the nature around me. And, and uh, so Santa Cruz and the Santa Cruz Mountains, they, they definitely inform me. Um, I was proud to be, you asked if I'm a Santa Cruz poet. I, I was the first poet laureate of Santa Cruz County. I was an artist of the year here. I mean, yeah, I'm, my roots are very deep in, in the Santa Cruz community. Yeah. Let's, um, let's finish by talking about um, some poets that people should be reading. Um, and I mentioned that, you know, in the questions I sent you, just three, but we can go on as long because I book recommendations is my favorite activity of all. Okay. Uh, and so I, 
you know, maybe let's start with Philip Levine and because we talked about him kind of on and off and um, he's such an important poet for uh, California history. So can you just share a little bit about who, who he is, who he was, and uh, some of your favorite collections of his poetry? Well, Levine came, he, he grew up in, uh, in Detroit, Michigan. He was the son of Jewish immigrants from Europe. He uh, had a fairly hard scrabble youth, worked in uh, automotive industry, but in um, hard physical labor jobs. Um, he has a lot of poems about axle grease. Um, <laughs> and uh, he went to Wayne State University. Well, it's now, it used to be Wayne State College. It's now Wayne State University. And uh, from there, went to the University of Iowa, got his MFA, and he was one of the first people to get an MFA. And, um, you know, we talked about what's happening to American poetry now, and there's kind of a leveling off. I mean, it's a danger, and, and I think MFA programs are part of that. Uh, when I got my MFA in 1975, I finished, um, there were 13 places to get an MFA. There's like almost a thousand now. Wow. And, and so we're pumping out poets. But um, in some ways, sometimes I think that that we're living in uh, an era that is commensurate with the Tang Dynasty in China, which was this extraordinary blossoming of, of poetic talent. I mean, it's, it, I don't think there's going to be much argument that there was maybe the greatest flowering of poetry. And we're having the same thing now. Um, Levine taught at the MFA program at Fresno State. And he encouraged and inspired a whole generation, maybe two generations of poets. Well, this has been happening all over. And so there's, there's the, uh, a worry that there's kind of a flattening out um, of poetry, but I, it, it, it may be, that may be true where poems sound alike. <laughs> it's like, who wrote that? Well, it could have been him or her or her or him. Um, and you can't really tell. But on the other side, there are so many incredibly good poems being written by so many truly outstanding poets. It's hard not to see that Levine and people like him um, are to be um, complimented for what they've done to the whole culture at large. So he moved to California in um, the early 60s, got a job at Fresno State um, with Peter Everwine, and they started the MFA program there, and he he retired in the late 80s, I believe. Could have been the early 90s, but I think it was the late 80s. And uh, he taught uh, periodically at NYU. He'd teach a, one course there uh, a year, spend one semester, and then he'd come back to Fresno. Uh, his, he has both uh, selected poems, his new selected poems. You can't go wrong with either one. I published a book called Unselected Poems by Philip Levine. <laughs> Uh, he was, <laughs> uh, he, he had a big manuscript. He took it to um, his publisher, uh, I believe Knopfen, and said, uh, here it is. And he said, oh, God, it's, it's too long, Phil. You've got to pull some poems. Um, and so he did. And he was complaining one night. We were drinking wine, and he was kvetching about, oh, they made me pull all these poems out. I said, well, no, we could publish it. He said, "Ah, the unselected poems." Yeah, it's kind of like um, there's those 
uh, grocery services that send like like you the the fruit that's just not ri- just not right that the grocery stores won't buy it. <laughs> yeah. That's that's a great story. So so selected poems or unselected poems are are good are good places to start with yeah. Levine. Yeah, um, he also had a memoir called The Bread of Time that I would um, encourage anyone who um, wants to know about his story. He has a lot of of, of essays about uh, you know being a student of of John Berryman for instance, and, and uh, the people that he worked with in, in uh, Iowa City. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's a terrific book. What are a few other poets um, that you'd recommend? Well, for California poets, you gotta read Robinson Jeffers. Um, he's just crucial. The old vintage edition of his selected poem, um, if you, once you've seen it, you recognize it every time you see it. Um, there's a picture of him, a drawing, he's all chiseled. Um, and uh, every time I see that book, um, I'm, I'm thrown back uh, to my early days as a poet. Uh, it was a, a, a critical book. Can you um, share a little bit about who he was? Robinson Jeffers, another transplant from the East who came to the West Coast in the late teens, early 20s and bought a big tract of land um, uh, in Carmel, although the, the Carmel was just a little village, mostly with artists. He bought a big tract of land, planted a whole lot of, of a whole forest of cypress trees, and then built a house out of rocks that he hauled up from uh, the sea, which was just below his, his house. And he built a house um, called Tor House, what he called, and with with Hawk Tower, he built this, and it's still there. It's now, unfortunately, his his children had an opportunity of 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 turning it into a park, and they went, ah, oh, let's sell it. And so, <laughs> sadly, they broke it off. They tore it. They, they, most of the trees are gone, although there's still some around, um, and there are houses all around his. But it's his is still there, and you can still take tours. And I recommend anybody to uh, make a pilgrimage to Tour House, it's, it's a, a, an amazing, magical place. Um, he sort of went out of favor, I think in part, uh, during World War II, he was uh, against the war, and his philosophy of inhumanism did not go over well. He has a line in a poem, um, he loved hawks, he loved uh, the natural world, um, but he had a rather sour um, view of mankind. Uh, he has a line uh, that goes, think it is I uh, except for the I just as soon except for the penalties kill a man as a hawk um, and he believed that I think he, you know he would have preferred if he could get away with it he'd rather have killed a man than a hawk he'd never kill a hawk um, and so uh, his work can be pretty grim I do not read his his long poems um, there there are two Roan Stallion and, and some of the others um, I read them they're misogynistic, they're violent, they're, uh, some people really like them, they're just not my cup of tea. But his lyric poems are extraordinary, and his poems about, about I mean, boats in the harbor, and about um, uh, the, the Santa Lucia Mountains, and uh, he really captures it in ways that, uh, I mean, he was the mentor for my mentor in college, and dear friend William Everson. Um, so, 
I mean, when you, when you, when you're talking about Carmel, I'm just thinking like what I, what I picture Carmel now, it's, you know, like uh, bankers on vacation and it's just, you know, it, it feels like a lot of places in California are like that where, you know, before you'd have some guy writing about seagulls, you know, on, <laughs> on Pebble Beach. But yeah, now, I, it, now there's just not a place for, for, those, for those kinds of eccentrics because it's just everything's so expensive. Um, they have to find less desirable land. I mean, that's yeah. really it. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was totally rural around here. Their sheep were grazing there and, and uh, uh, but it was a, a Mecca artist who, who would come down and stay. And, um, but he's somebody that really you, you want to have. There's a book called Rock and Hawk, which is another edition of Jennifer's selected poems that um, Robert Hass uh, edited. And, and that's another one that, that I think you know, I would direct people to. Okay. And Robert Hass, he's an essential California writer. Um, which book? His, his second book, Praise, is almost a perfect book. Um, it has what is now pretty much an iconic California poem, um, Meditation at Lagunitas. Um, he has, it starts off uh, with these great lines, all the new thinking is about loss, in that it resembles all the old thinking. <laughs> Um, and, and it's just a marvelous poem, but he, he is also a, a native Californian, um, grew up in Northern California, and uh, he writes brilliantly about um, all kinds of things, but about the California landscape and about the culture of California. Um, he has a book called um, Human Wishes, which is also brilliant and has uh, a number of very beautiful prose poems including one called, um, oh God, what's it called? The, um, the Harbor in Seattle, which is really about San Francisco and how they blasted the hills that you can see by Knob Hill as ballast on, uh, for ships that were bringing lumber down to rebuild uh, San Francisco after the fire. And then they dumped the ballast to create the Harbor in Seattle. So um, can, I ask, can I ask you about a, a Santa Cruz uh, or someone that I don't know how much time uh, she spent in Santa Cruz, but, you know, for me, like Adrienne Rich is kind of one of those that I think about. Um, and um, she was in the same area with you. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, where, where would one start with uh, her work if, if one was trying to explore? I'm just thinking about honest. women writers in California. This may sound strange, but I would start with the fact of a door frame, um, which are essays. Um, okay. Her, you know, she's, she was a brilliant, brilliant um, writer, but, but also a brilliant thinker. And um, her, her poems, I actually prefer her prose to her poetry, um, but her last books, and I am just absolutely seeing a, a brick wall in my head. Um, but but her, her last books of poems uh, were much more lyric and, and I felt much more heartfelt. Uh, you know, she's uh, an important feminist, one of the most important feminists of her generation, I think. Uh, another reason that I prefer her, her essays, um, a lot of her poetry could be um, 
I'll get in trouble for this, but a little pedantic. Um, I really don't like being preached to in a poem. I don't mind being preached to in an essay. And, uh, but you, you really can't go wrong with her. Who are some other woman uh, poets from California that you'd recommend? Killarney Clary. She's just an essential read. Um, she uh, is one of those poets who always seems, no matter how much time goes by, still seems to be ahead of everybody else. Like you can try to catch up with Killarney, but you just don't seem to get there. Um, her first book, By Me, By Any, Can and Can't Be Done, is just a mesmerizing tour de force. It's just incredible. And uh, her most recent book is called Shadow of a Cloud, But No Cloud. And it's a masterpiece and just beautiful. A um, lot of poems about uh, Southern California where she grew up. And then uh, more recently poems about our area. She moved to the hills above Aptos about 10 years ago with her husband. Yeah, I was, um, I was reading the final uh, poems that Le Guin put out before. I was, I'm not sure if it was posthumous or not, um, but they're called, I think they're called final poems. Um, and I only had read her science fiction like most of us. Um, but I, I, I found those kind of final poems, some of, you know, kind of very poignant, very haunting, very, you know, simple, but um, succinct in what she was trying to say. Um, and, and I, you know, it, it's, well, we could go on forever, right? You know, with, with poet recommendations. Um, let's, let's, let's stop with, let's finish with one uh, that's personal to me because uh, he's in the Valley, uh, Juan Felipe Herrera. Um, can you share a little bit about uh, who he is? And, uh, you know, he, he writes such interesting stuff. You know, you, you almost don't know where to start. I mean, I, uh, he's got this little book, I think it's called Jabberwalking that came out recently for kids. It's kind of like a, uh, it's, it's for adults too. I mean, um, but it's just kind of this, a method of writing, you know, sure. as much as it is poetry. Can you talk a little bit about him? Well, Juan Felipe, um, he's, he too is political um, in the best sense. His, uh, as a uh, Chicano writer, um, he is one of the people that brought uh, the voice of Latinx writers into the open. He was our state poet laureate and he was the United States poet laureate. So he brought a lot of, of uh, um, he shone a light on California and on um, uh, the literature of, of the border and essentially the crossing borders between uh, the Hispanic uh, countries south of the United States and, and how that has influenced and blossomed here, especially in California but all over the, 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 the United States. He came into my class, uh, he read here um, a couple of years ago, and uh, I used Jabberwalking in my class. My students used it and we wrote it, and he is, um, uh, I don't think it's, this may sound, um, I don't want to pigeonhole him, but he is a populist. He writes for people. He wants you to read his poems. He wants you to understand poems. He wants you to feel the joy of poetry. Um, and so, uh, his poetry can be very, very uh, sophisticated and very serious, but he is never trying to uh, write above his audience, ever. And that's one of the things I love about him most. And uh, uh, he, again, he was, is, is, was and is uh, one of the great uh, 
voices of um, uh, Latinx writers in this country. Um, to close, I just, before we talk a little bit about where to find your work, I just want to kind of uh, give you a moment to talk to, you know, perhaps history nerds that are listening that maybe only ever read prose. Um, maybe they have, you know, they've got the rise and the fall of the third Reich. They'll spend, they'll spend, <laughs> they'll spend 150 hours reading about Hitler, but you know, you, you give them a 50 page collection of poetry and they're like, eh, I don't know. So what, what would be your uh, pitch for maybe, uh, you know, people that don't read poetry that often, what, what are they, what are they missing out on that you'd like to draw them into? What poetry offers is a communion between the reader and the writer. Um, a good poem is not just about something. It's an invitation to enter the heart, the spirit, the mind of the poet. Uh, I think a lot of people are terrified of that invitation. It's too, it's too intimate. When you read a history book, um, although you can be sucked into it, you never feel like you're being sucked into the author. And the same thing is true of, of novels. You may identify with a character, but you never feel like, like you're being spoken to directly by the author of the novel. In a poem, even if it's a poem that is about um, the waves at dusk, birds flying over um, and landing in a tree, um, you feel, you hear, you're invited to be with the person who wrote the poem. Um, I think a lot of people are afraid of poetry because they think it's a puzzle and they won't be smart enough to figure it out. And of course the best poems, in fact I preach to my students, poems are not puzzles. Um, what poetry does is elucidate. It lights up the world so that we can tell what the hell's happening there. And so, um, to read a poem and to read a poet is to get inside somebody else's head, to see through their eyes, and to um, see a part of the world that you might have missed. Um, it's not hard, and it's, uh, most poets don't demand very much. They just want your attention. And of course, there is the music. A good poem is like listening to a good song. You know, it's a beautiful, beautiful music. Yeah, you never, you never sit there and and ask yourself, well, let's, you know, we really need to analyze what Bob Dylan said. You just, you just enjoy it or you sing along or, or, or whatever. And I don't know if it's a failure of the education system in, or, or how literature is taught that you have to find the theme or find the symbols or, or whatever it is. Um, but this kind of scientific approach uh, really prevents people from enjoying poetry. I find, I, I, I think that you know, you know, it's maybe a, a pedagogical problem that's turned into a national disability, you know, to really just sit down with a poem and not have an agenda. No, poetry, um, both writing it and reading it, is ultimately for pleasure. That's for pleasure. Nothing really more than that. There are different levels and different kinds of pleasure, but it is a pleasant thing to read a poem, even one that challenges you, even one that breaks your heart. It's a pleasure. Um, it is not, you know, there's not gonna be a test at the end of the poem. Uh, and so I always encourage people to, to just pick up a poem and, and treat it like you would a letter from a friend.
Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it's like when you go into nature, you don't go into nature to, you know, figure out what the genus of that tree is you're looking at. You're just, you're just, you're just appreciating the beauty of what you see. And I, I think that, um, you know, I hope that, uh, the next generation of educators can bring that sense of poetry to their students and stop worrying about those damn AP tests and start worrying <laughs> about, you know, whether, whether their kids are, you know, appreciating the beauty in, in the written word. So to close, um, where, where can we uh, find your work? Uh, I'm obviously going to link to your, uh, your website and different things below, but where, where can we find your work and uh, what are you working on currently? Well, most of my books, the ones that are still in print, um, are available on Amazon. Um, that's the easiest way. Uh, my last, my latest book uh, came out a couple years ago. Uh, that's what I thought. It's it won the Lexi Rudnitsky Editor's Choice Prize from Persia Books, and so it can be bought from Persia. I always encourage people to buy books from. Uh, presses, if, if possible. <laughs> um, White Pine published my new and selected poems um, called Even So. Uh, but all those books are, are available on, on Amazon. Um, Great. Well, I And of course, local bookstores, uh, if, if, feel free. I do encourage people to... It's harder now um, because of COVID. Uh, but if you order books from your bookstore, your local bookstore, that supports uh, both the press and the bookstore. So uh, it's easier to just go to Amazon, but eh, if you've got a, a bookstore that, that you want to support, let them order it for you. Yeah, Bezos will be fine. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. Even after his divorce, <laughs> I think he'll be fine. Well, I appreciate you coming on and I, you know, I got a lot out of this conversation. I know everyone listening, uh, I'm sure will as well. So um, thank you so much. And uh, you know, my thoughts and prayers are, you know, for, Santa Cruz and you know what you guys lost so well thank you Jordan it's been a pleasure and I really appreciate it all right thank you for listening to this podcast I hope you enjoyed it one small note uh, a brief of a amendment to what was said in the podcast when Gary was referring to Adrian Rich's work the book he intended to recommend was what is found there not the fact of a door frame I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for more episodes posting later this week. Until next time.